Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 261. Today was Pesach Sheni, so let's begin straight with something in Yonah Diyema, meaning something of this day itself. Pesach Sheni is, of course, a passion in Baal and the Torah with the Eden, when they left Egypt, were unable to bring the Paschal lamb, the Pesach offering on Pesach, they came and complained to Moshe Rabbeinu, Laman Negara, why are we left out? Why should we be less? Why should we not have that opportunity? Now, obviously, Moshe, in his own mind, thought, you know, you missed you miss the boat, you missed the opportunity. Over Yemi, bottle carboni. The day passed, you can't bring the carbon. He turned to Hashem, and Hashem said, the mitzvah of Pesach Sheni, that if someone was tome, or meaning somebody was impure, or they were far away from the place where you have to bring the, base, the Pesach, carbon Pesach, they have a second chance on Pesach, Sheni. Exactly a month from the first Pesach. And the Friedrich Rebbe, based on that, we have the word of Pesach Sheni teaches us, there's nothing that is ever lost. So though we have the lesson of tshuva, being able to repent and atone for past mistakes, and we have many such lessons throughout the year. But Pesach Sheni has something particular, as the Rebbe explains, because this came as a request and out of the sense of inadequacy and being feeling deprived that the Jewish people had, those that were in a state where they could not bring the first Pesach. And that itself evoked, it wouldn't have come, so to speak, on its own. It evoked from Hashem, from God, a new approach that you have as a which teaches us that you have to do something. When you cry out and you truly sense the lack of something you need, and you say, Lama nigara, there will always be a response. There's no farfal, nothing is ever lost. The lesson in context of chassidus applied, in context in general of life, is a tremendous lesson. Because we're all going to have times where we are impure or distant, spiritually, physically, psychologically, emotionally. The question is, what happens then? Many people despair. They get resigned. They give up. They say, I'm not worth it. I'll never make it. Comes Pesach Sheni this day and tells us, no, nothing is lost. Just remain hopeful and cry out and say, why am I lacking? That itself can bring something. Because you could think, look, if since I didn't get it, What's the point of complaining? We're not talking about complaining. We're talking about feeling the hunger and the thirst. Famous story. The Rebbe Rashab, there was a chassar who came to see the Rebbe Rashab and he asked something for something. And he didn't get his request. He came out crying. He meets the Razo, the Rebbe Rashab's older brother. And Razo sees he's crying. He says, why are you crying? He says, I went to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe said, did not, uh, did not bless me. So the Razo went to his brother and said, that's what a Rebbe is for. A Rebbe is to bless, not, not to bless. The Razor send, send, send them back in. They sent back the Chosid and, and he asked his request. The Rebbe Rasha blessed. So the obvious question is why didn't he bless him in the first place? Because the Rebbe Rasha saw he needed to make a keli, he needed to make some type of effort, some initiative, and the crying of feeling deprived that he didn't get a blessing, that itself elicited a blessing. So never underestimate. The power of a sincere cry. The power of a sincere feeling of inadequacy. Not in low self-esteem context. Not to make yourself feel that you're worthless. But feeling, and the contrary, you're worth it. And you feel sad or deprived. Why didn't you get it? And that evoked the Pesach Sheni, and that can evoke for each of us a second chance. Very basic but fundamental lesson. This week will also be Lag Ba'imer, which is Thursday. Lag Bemer, of course, is the Yartzeit, the Hilula. And you could even call it the Simcha, because the Rashbi asked that it should be a day of joy. The Hilula of the Rabbi Shimon Bayechoi, as the Zayar documents in the Idra Zuta, which is the Parshas Hazinu and Zayar, the last day of Rashbi. Very moving account. How he gathered his students, how he taught the deepest Torah. And how he reveals secrets where he says, I don't want to leave this world without revealing and being told that you didn't reveal what you had to reveal. And as a true Rebbe, that's what he did. And then he said, Bechat katiris katarna. Chassidus makes such a big 
with one bind, I bound myself. And he saw that he's says, in that way. As Chassidus explains, why of all these talkers of tzaddikim, which students are supposed to sit shiva and cry for, why did the Rashbi ask it should be a simcha? Because being the Baal Pnimis HaTeda, the Rashbi was someone who taught the inner dimension of Teda. The inner dimension of Teda sees the inner dimension of everything, including a negative thing, like a passing. So though definitely, halachically, they had to sit shiva, but the Rashbi also implanted that in the years to come, it should be a great simcha. And what do we see today? Till this day, the pilgrimages only grow in number and enjoy to Miran when people go up to Miran, which is the place, the oil of the Rashbi, Anlag Ba'emir. The Arizal would go there, spend sometimes three days, but definitely would go there during, during um, Lag Ba'emir. And this became a custom throughout the generations. Kedai Rashimen Lismachalov Bishasat Chav. Rashimen is one you can rely on when you're in in a pressured situation, in a dire strait. And different expressions how Rajbi promised and, and assured his students and generations to come that when you'll need something, when there'll be any particular need, call upon me. So what is this lesson to us? Lagba'imir bridges schisms. In general, the structure of existence is made up, there's, there's a structure. And a structure includes different layers <clears throat> and different shrouds and different barriers. As it says, when Lovan and, and, um, and Yaakov part ways, this gal, this mound, this mound will be a witness, will be our boundary. And um, so this brings, gal is the letters lag, lag, gimolamed. Refers them from a boundary, from a bound, and a boundary becomes, it bridges it. Because Rashbi, Abshim Rabbi bridged the different worlds. He bridged the world of the concealed and the world of the revealed. The world of the conscious and the world of the superconscious. The world of imminence and the world of transcendence. The body and the soul. Gufa Daraisa, the body of Teirah, Rashbi was an unbelievable and great Tana, one of the students of Rabbi Akiva. And was, of course, the Baal Primisa Teirah, Nishmosa Daraisa. So, usually, soul and body are two different realities, at least in our perspective. One is revealed, one is concealed. One is the word, the Vraim Shabi Abosha, meaning the land mammals, and one is Nuniyama, the fish that live in the sea. Very different worlds. One is concealed, one is revealed. In Teiri, you also have the two, and Rajbi bridged the two, which is why he's compared to Moshe Rabbeinu at times, because Moshe too, Minamai Mishisua. His name is named after the fact that I drew him out of water because he bridged the world of these hidden worlds of water, which is the superconscious, Almedeskasi, the hidden worlds, with the dry land where we all dwell. And we saw it by Kriya Syamsuf. And similarly, Lagba Imr does that same idea, which is why it's called Matan Teda Primisater. And today we know after Razizal and then the Balshemtiv and then the Rabbeim. Mitzvah legal is that this inner wisdom, which was once exclusive only for Yechidah's Gula, for individuals, and learned in a very subdued manner, only one person at a time, you don't learn unless you're in, as an individual. By that Izal began to spread and then only grew, as Mashiach told the Baal Shemtev. And today, at for the two reasons, one is as a taste and a foretaste, an appetizer of Mashiach's times when Primis Atera will be revealed and will have the bridge between the inner and the outer. And because as we get closer and it gets darker, we need more light and it's inter- interconnected, these two reasons. So like Bema teaches us that we can open up boundaries, we can open up blockages and impediments that perhaps usually are not possible to open up, which is one of the reasons that on Lag Be'emer, it says, the Mitla Rebbe would go out into the field and he would give brachas, especially regarding children. What's, what's the difficulty of having a child would be, God forbid, is due to a blocked passage. The womb doesn't open. Poiked Akodis, the Medrash says, Rashbi, was Poiked Akodis. He opened up wombs of those that seemingly were unable to have children. An Akodah. 
opening up a channel is exactly what Lag Bayamir is. And this is also true, not just in technically business, biological children, but also in general, opening up blocks and all kinds of impediments or things that may not allow us to really access our potential and our actualize our great skills and mission in this world. So Lag Bayamir, I'm just being brief, opens up so many different channels. That's why it's such a day of blessing, as I said, from the Mitla Rebbe. And we saw by the Rebbe, the Lag Bayamir parades. And like Bema was a day the Simcha of the Rebbe was unparalleled, especially when he was with the children. And like Bema is somewhat of a mysterious Yom Tov because what do you really do on Yom Tov, on the day of like Bema? The Rebbe went to the oil. But it's a day of celebration because we're celebrating Rajbi, a unique Tana, who stood out in the fact that he was bridged in his time, all the worlds. And that's why it created an Achdus, a unity, that even in Sfirah Se'emer, the time when, God forbid, the epidemic happened that the 24,000 students of, Ra- of Rabbi Akiva though he learned, they taught, he taught them that loving your fellow is a fundamental principle of Teira, they were not respectful to each other, they did not causing an epidemic Rashbi was one of those students but he was one from the few that remained because they did show Ardus and unity, the remedy, the antidote to divisiveness and it's demonstrated in the fact that Rashbi, just as I said, connecting levels, connected the inner and the outer, connecting Jews of all backgrounds, Ashkenazim, Svardim, Chsidim, non-Chsidim, all unite in the Simcha of Rashbi. I mentioned once, or more than once, a number of times, you find a similar thing with Arizal, just as an aside, whose yard site is hate of, the fifth of of, also the saddest time of the year, even sadder, days literally before Tisha B'Av, that's his yard site. And you see again, that is an antidote, like Magdim Raful Lamaka, the healing before the illness, before the difficulty, that the Beis Amigdash was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, ninth of all, due to what? Baseless hatred, baseless divisiveness. Comes that Iza, and corrects and repairs that. And just as the Rajbi repairs the divisiveness of our time. And we do so in the 49 days of counting the Omer, which is also his Kavalus, connecting them all together, Chesed, Gvura, but also Chesed Shebe Chesed, Gvura Shebe Chesed, all the way till we march toward the 50th day, which is Matan Teir. Finally, it's also Parshas Bahar this week. This year, because it was a Shonim Uberes and Leap Year, so many of the Parshas are separated that are usually together. So Bahar B'chakaysay comes together usually, but this year it comes separately. It's a beautiful Sikha from the Rebbe, and I'm sure I mentioned it in the past, in the previous years. Bahar Tovshimem Zayin, where he focuses, as always, on the name of the chapter, even though the name is not the whole chapter, but a name, as the Alter Rebbe says, captures the essence and the theme of the chapter. Bahar, seemingly a word out of nowhere. It's Bahar Sinai. That's what the Pasuk is talking about. It starts about Shemitah. What's Shemitah connected to Har Sinai, as Rashi explains? So Bahar means just the mountain, because that itself teaches us a lesson. That there are times we have to be like mountains. A mountain... There's a few elements to it. First of all, there's a certain pride, a ge'en yankif, Jewish pride, standing, walking upright with the right humility, but walking upright with pride, with self-confidence, with courage, to be able to deal with every challenge because God blessed us and sent us to this world as his messenger. Bahar also, the Rebbe explains in that sikh, is the power of growth, because mountains grow. He brings there from different sources that a mountain is sometimes compared to tzemeach shebedemim. You think a mountain is made out of stone. Stone is mineral. It doesn't move. It doesn't change. A mountain is tzemeach shebedemim. In mineral itself, it's a growing element. The Rebbe explains there, what does that mean, that it grows? You can look it up yourself. And usually tzemeach shebedemim, we compare it to the coral in the sea, which is also demim, it's mineral, but it grows. It's a living organism. And there, the, 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 the mountains are also that way. So the mountains have personal lessons for us. Besides Bahar Sinai, the Mount Sinai, which is what the, Pasuk, the verse is referring to. Besides all the other chapters, all the messages in the chapter, the mere fact that we stand like a heart, and this year it stands alone, the chapter, the need to be able to stand strong, to stand courageous. We just saw it, unfortunately, in the tragedy of Poway, which I've discussed in the previous weeks, a few weeks, two weeks ago, I had the the memorable interview, the memorable interview with Rabbi Goldstein, Israel Goldstein. You see the walking in Yankov that he picked up from the Rebbe, from Chsidis. Something we all need to learn because it gives you the ability to confront anything. 
As the Alter Rebbe says right in the beginning of chapter 26 in Tanya, the famous example of the two people wrestling. If you don't have the willpower, if you're demoralized, even if you're stronger, you'll lose. So walking with confidence and strength and knowing we're not standing on our own strengths, but on the shoulders of those before us, the greats before us, that gives us that Bahar attitude, to be like a Har, to be like a mountain that stands above the rest in a humble way, but yet like a mountain. So it gives you the fortitude and the confidence and the determination to achieve anything you need set your mind to achieve, and especially in fulfilling our purpose in this world. So there you have lessons, Chassidus applied Pesach Sheni, Lagba Emer, Bahar, many more lessons, and I will then refer you, this is cross-referencing to other episodes where I talked about them, and they include episodes 17, 66 and 67, 116, 161, 162, 211, 212. Yep, the list keeps growing, but the episodes keep growing due to your great participation, asking questions, viewing, listening, sharing, commenting. All this has made into a very vibrant and robust platform for taking chassidus and applying it to our lives. So with that, let me announce, as I announced last week, we have a new website because of the great demand and the developing programs that are coming in this brand called My Life Chassidus Supplied. We've created a new website called chassidusapplied.com. Everything you found till now is being redirected. So even if you go back to our site, meaningfullife.com, slash my life, it's redirected, but now you can go straight to the site. It's cleaner, it's more organized. You can find things, the essays, as well as previous archives. They're all time-stamped in the YouTube desktop and laptop version, as well as other resources, and of course the opportunity to ask your anonymous and totally confidential questions on the forum there, chassidusapply.com. So please check it out, give us your feedback, and again, share. It's all about the ripple effect. We, are, we were educated that everything you know you need to share. If this is a program that helps you and that helps me and helps us all, our obligation, our gift is to share it with others. Okay, so thank you for that, and please do not hesitate to write your questions. Everything is, will be addressed. There's nothing off limits. Sometimes it'll take a little more time because there's a backup. But I'm moving along, and I really feel prou- proud to say that we're constantly covering new questions, and I'm always surprised. You know, at some point you think every question that has been asked will be, that has been asked, that can be asked, has been asked, and it's not the case. There are questions that overlap, some repeat, but many questions are new, as you'll see as we go along in this program. So, let us now go to the first question for this week. The, t- the writer titled it Culturally, Res- Culturally Responsive Teaching. And the question, nutshell, and then I'll read it in full, the full question. As an Orthodox Jew teaching in a secular school, how do I navigate and draw the line between insisting on kindness and acceptance of all students in our classroom and normalizing or condoning behavior that is forbidden by Teda? Very good question. It's a commonly asked question, not only in school, but in other places, but let me read it out loud, and then we'll address it. I work as a teacher and instructional coach in a mainstream school. Our student body is composed of students of diverse races, sexual orientations, and gender identities. A predominant issue in many of our classrooms is the perpetuation of racial racial slurs, stereotypes, and bullying. I recently took an online course on the topic of culturally responsive teaching, which seeks to respect and embrace the diverse cultures and identities of our students. To foster an emotionally safe and inclusive environment conducive to learning for all students. I wish to implement many of these practices in my classroom, but I'm unsure how to navigate the issues surrounding sexual orientation and gender identity. Within Taylor, these are morally charged issues, but this is not the prevalent attitude within secular society. The the LGBTQ population is considered another marginalized minority group whom we have a moral responsibility to respect and accept. That being said, it gets personal in our school environment when we have students being bullied or called names because of their sexual orientation and gender identity. I don't know where the line is drawn between insistence upon kindness and acceptance in our classroom and normalizing or condoning behavior that is forbidden by Taylor. Taylor. It would be highly conspicuous and offensive for me to facilitate conversations about culture and race without addressing 
the other elephant in the room, the LGBTQ community. I also recognize that I need to tread lightly since I am conspicuously an Orthodox Jew and represent Torah. Any insight into how to navigate the sensitive issue would be appreciated. Okay, a very powerful and very challenging question, I should say. And I'll try to address it to the best of my ability. I don't know if I have a direct answer to this particular question from the Rebbe or from anything directly in Chassidus, but we have guidelines that address and balancing Torah standards and dealing with realities on the ground, wherever you may be, in the workplace, or in this case, even more so, more sensitively in the school. Let's make one thing clear. There's a very big distinction between a person's behavior and the person. We don't reject people. God created human beings. Everyone in the divine image. Everyone has their challenges. People make choices, sometimes bad choices, and sometimes they don't even know they're making bad choices because they're ignorant. So this isn't condoning or in any way supporting their mistake or supporting their ignorance. It's distinguishing between what we call the sins should be erased, not the sinners. So as a human being in general, a leader, especially an educator in a school, above all, sensitivity comes first. You have students. Everyone is entitled to be respected. And there's bullying or slurs or insensitive behavior. You don't just say, no, we only accept... We don't accept certain slurs and other slurs are acceptable. Slurs are not acceptable. Even if one is the community you describe, which I don't even like to use the word community, but let's just say a person is in that area. Gender issues, sexual orientation issues. Who says we go with slurs? Is that a Torah approach? To insult? To humiliate? To demoralize? That's not a Torah approach. If you want to deal with it, it has to be dealt with privately in a way that does not hurt anybody. So the first thing is this teacher has to maintain standards where it's not appropriate for children to hurt each other no matter what. And let's say even, let's not even talk about this issue. Let's say a child, for whatever reason, a parent did something really criminal, was arrested. Or the child itself did something really inappropriate. And everybody knows the teacher's role is not to allow bullying and ganging up on the child. So this isn't only about gender or, or sexual orientation. It's about anything. When we deal with, a, with something that is inappropriate, let's say, there's a way of dealing with it, even if we all agree that this thing needs to be dealt with. Now, you'll say, one second, if I'm going to show sensitivity and I'm not going to allow people to slur and bully, it'll come across as if I'm endorsing that person's behavior. There's a way to deal with that. Teach your class that. That's a lesson to be taught. And you can say, we have a class, there's different students in this class, different backgrounds, different ways of living. We are here to respect each other. We may not agree with each other's way of living. We may not agree with people's behavior. But there's never a right for a person to hurt another person. If you indeed feel, this is a lesson in life, if you indeed ever meet somebody that you disagree adamantly with the way they're living or behaving, and you feel you want to do something about it, the way is not to go, humiliate them, demoralize, post it, bully, cyberbullying, whatever. You really want care about the person? Maybe find out about their lives. Maybe become a friend. Support them in other ways. Once this trust is gained, you may have a positive influence. Don't go like a preacher. You're not here to go change people. So there's an attitude. So it's very important to distinguish. Something can be wrong, but the question is how you deal with it. Now, we're not talking about the wrong or right. We're talking about how to deal with it. As a teacher, you're a living example of how to teach and be sensitive to all people. Then, doesn't mean you have to address this issue. I don't know if that's the, the mandate you have in the class to talk about gender and sexual orientations and so on. But to teach people to be sensitive and kind is definitely your mandate. As far as the issues themselves, that has to be dealt with completely as a separate issue. One is not connected to the next. When a Jew comes into a shul, and let's say he's dressed in a way that doesn't even fit into the shul. So you can start laughing at him. Actually throw him out. Tell him, you're coming to a synagogue. Be respectful. Or realize, you know what? He may not know better. Or even if he does know, he's a Jew. It's a synagogue. He wants to come to synagogue. You never know why he's there. Be kind and be loving. Gain trust. And then at some point, you're a friend and say, you know, we come to shul. Try to dress up a bit. But not that moment. 
Only once there's already a warm relationship. We don't stand by the door and say, I want to know all the sins you did today and then we'll, we'll first rebuke and humiliate you and then we'll talk. We don't look at it that way. Because if we start looking that way, which person's going to enter a room, a school, a class, or a shul without some blemish? Everybody has issues. So what are we going to say? We're only going to point out those that everybody knows, that people have, are, are, are pronouncing? Now, if somebody's coming to your synagogue, your community, your school, and they want to influence others, and they're trying to impose their philosophy on others, equally sensitive. Why are you imposing? We're not imposing anything on you. Don't impose on others. So discrimination can go both ways. And everybody has to be respectful. And all efforts have to be done properly, discreetly, sensitively, modestly. And especially if your intention is to really remedy a situation, it never works by rebuking and humiliating. All you're doing is breaking someone's heart and soul and uh, does not help. Even if you end up, cow- end up intimidating them, is that what you want, intimidating someone or you want someone to really grow? So, to go back to your question, it's a balance, and it's very easy to demonstrate how you're not condoning or in any way endorsing. You make it very clear. We have many differences. You can have differences with your own family members about matters, and we still love each other. And that's the key thing to remember and distinguish. Okay. Next question. The writer Wright titles it, Studying Psychology in an Orthodox Setting. But the detail is actually, is there a healthy need for ego? Hi, I wanted to know if the Rebbe was against the idea of secular education till you're full of Torah, or he just didn't like the university. I'm reading that even though that's not the focus of this question. I've addressed that many times. Also wanted to know, I listened to your talk about logotherapy. That's Viktor Frankl. What I didn't understand is Sigmund Freud's idea, something a chassid should follow. I think I once read in a book, that about the need for the ego, referring obviously to Freud's ego, I assume. Thank you for your Avedis HaKedosh, you transformed my life, and I know of many more. Okay. So first of all, regarding secular education is not the topic since it was all part of one question, I read it. I don't have the episodes here, but I've discussed it many, many times. Very easy to find, just type in secular education, and you'll get the Rebbe's approach. The Rebbe's approach was more complicated than just a specific thing. Yes, there was the university environment, but there was also secular education per se, and worshiping it, turning it into a god almost, deifying it, and many other details. But I'm going to address the second half of the question. Is there a healthy need for ego? So first of all, what you're referring to regarding Freud and logotherapy that I discussed, the Rebbe, of all the psychologists, secular psychologists, Viktor Frankl, the Rebbe has a leaning toward meaning sees a positive element because his key fundamental underlying foundation is that the driving force in a human being is the search for meaning. Man's search for meaning. In Freud is the id, it's pleasure, sexual. And you have an ego and a superego that somewhat balance it. And then there were other, Adler and Jung and others who had each one, what is the driving force? So meaning, of course, is very consistent with Theta. The search for meaning, the searching for purpose, the search for God's purpose in this world. And he explains how the Jews in the Holocaust, even though they suffered like everyone else, because they had meaning, it gave them an extra energy, an extra willpower to be able to endure. So, yes, it's very antithetical. Freud's pleasure principle is very antithetical to Tate. Because Tate says a person is created in a divine image. Yes, we also have Yetzelev Adam Ram and but that's in Parsha Nayach. We also have a second inclination. We have a Yetzir Teva, Yetzir But the essence of the person is good. But you have a battle. And there's a reason for this battle. So one could argue, okay, if that's the case, ego seems to be driven by the animal soul. And yet we know that even a tzaddik, even a Talmud Chochem, has to have shminis shebeshminis. means an eighth of an eighth of some sense of self and ego. Why? Because if not, he becomes an eskupa and it means a doormat that people walk over. There's a very big difference between humility and low self-esteem. Low self-esteem means you think you're nothing, you're, not, you're worthless. Um, humility, as Moses was humble, humility means you know your strengths. You're quite aware. And you know that God blessed you with them. 
and the opportunities. Yet you say, it's not mine, it's God gave them to me. If someone else was blessed with them, they may have done better than I. Very different. One is very self-assured, but it's not about me, that arrogance. The other one is completely no self-assurance. So we need to have ego, but which is checked and harnessed toward having a sense, I mentioned before, Bahar, to be like a mountain, to stand strong, to stand proud, to feel confident. That's very healthy. If it spills over to arrogance, then it's not. That's what we need to check. If it spills over to low self-esteem, meaning not only am I not proud in a good way, but I feel worthless, then you can't do anything. You're demoralized. You're unable to function. It doesn't bring to anything holy or, or positive. So it's like two ways that you can be debilitated. One is through extreme arrogance. One is through extreme opposite of self-denigration. And both are in a way a form of arrogance, if you think about it. Because who gave you the right? Who says you have a right to be, say you're worthless? God created you. So some people use that arrogance and say, I'm greater than everybody. And others say, I'm worse than everybody. And neither are acceptable. A person cannot establish that they're a righteous person. They can't establish they're a wicked person. That's not our domain. We're not objective. And it's not something we're given to determine. Each of us is extraordinary. We all have something unique and indispensable. Why? Because God created you in the divine image. Not because you're so special. It's not It's not due to your effort. Your effort should be to actualize it. So we all have that element of healthy ego, if you wish you can put it that way. Okay. Next question. Can a sociopath do tshuva? I'm not laughing. Sociopath is no laughing matter. Neither is a psychopath. But the question, and it was one of the questions I've not heard before, <clears throat> can a sociopath do tshuva? Okay, so terms are vital here. How do we define a sociopath? The conventional psychological secular determination in the manual is that a sociopath is someone who's a disorder, who is socially... Um, socially disconnected from others and therefore can be cruel and insensitive and lacks empathy and can lead to worse things. His discussion is a psychopath like a sociopath and the consensus is that a psychopath is a sociopath but worse. Because it usually can also lead to even violence and other things. But basically, it's someone that's lacking the connection to other natural connection people have to each other, the empathy, the care. You're not going to hurt someone for no reason. So, of course, you can start saying, so what is a sadist? I'm not going to go through every disorder right now. Now, why is that vital? Because here comes the question. If any of these disorders, if a psychopath or a sociopath is something that's not up to your choice, then you could say, then does he even have to do tshuva? It's not up to him. Or her. But we know it's not appropriate behavior. The tater says not to behave that way. So the question is, how could the tater command something that some people have no control over? That's why we have to conclude that from a tater chesidus approach, there's no such thing, a person who's compelled that must hurt other people, that must be insensitive to other people. Even if there's an inclination like that, let's even say that you can define that there's something in the personality of the person, not due to nurture, not due to an acquired behavior. They picked it up from parents or others that were behaved in a sociopathic manner. But even if you were to argue it's part of a person's makeup, that doesn't mean you have to act on it. So in that sense, you have control of not acting on it. Even if there's an inclination. And therefore, if a person did act on it, yes, absolutely, they can do tshuva and repair their ways. There's a big debate amongst professionals can you heal? Can you remedy a sociopath? And of course, a psychopath. Some say you can't. Some say you could, might, you could limit and minimize the symptoms. But not always through just cultivating emotions, but making them very self-aware. If a person is extremely self-aware, they can see when something is rising, some type of, just like an angry person who's not self-aware, will have outbursts, tantrums. But when you become self-aware, you begin to check yourself and say, oh, you know, something's happening, let me do something about it. So from a Teir this approach, 
not now discussing secular approaches, even if you were to say a person has an element of that in their personality, you can do something about it. Behavioral control. And that can also lead to also um, deeper control. You act like you love people and you end up loving people. It's a mitzvah. Start with actions. Start with behavior. Treat someone nicely. And even if you don't feel it, you can end up becoming nice. You say, one second, I have a psycho- sociopathic symptoms. So what? So that doesn't mean you can't behave nicely to someone. It doesn't say anywhere a sociopath can be nice. He doesn't want to be nice. His, tend- his tendency is not to be nice. Let's put it that way. His nature is not. But since when are we bound by nature? You control yourself. Nowhere does it say a sociopath or a psychopath must hurt people. Even if you have that, as I said, element or disorder, if you want to call it that, even if that's true, and that needs to be established as well, you can curb your behavior and control it. And yes, you could even be nice. Not only not be not nice, you could also be nice. So in that sense, tshuva is possible. Correcting, repairing, and we all know tshuva is coming to the same situation and not doing it again. But predicated is that the person is doing something about it. It's not just we'll tell you, you know what, there's always hope for tshuva. What are you doing about it? In other words, are you reaching out for, for help? Are you challenging yourself? Because at the end of the day, what the Torah Chassidus demands of us is to challenge yourself. How do you know you have it all right? Now, we know narcissism can be such where a person doesn't even think that they can ever be wrong. But I don't know if a sociopath is the same. Maybe it could be a sociopathic narcissist. Again, this is getting complicated. But I will say that the first step in everything is to teach people awareness. And this everybody can learn. You open up a Torah. You open up a Shulchan Aruch. You open up a Maimach Chassidus, a Sicha. And you see how kind people behaved, how compassionate people trust treated each other. And you say, this is a lesson to me. At least start in action. If that's your standard and you're fighting for it, so then you become aware. And if somebody points and you say, do you know anything about my behavior that may be insensitive? Someone will say, yes, by the, by the, by, as a matter of fact. If you're responsive to that, you're going on your way to, the issue, to solving the issues. Is it completely solved? Like we all have. We have many inclinations that if we don't act on it, it doesn't become a monster. It doesn't mean that we never will have a temptation. But then it can go into the category it's under control. Okay. Next question. Sleep. Does Chassidus ever expect us to sleep less than is normally required? As you see, the questions continues to come in from all directions. Again, a question that I don't recall being asked. So does Chassidus expect us to ever sleep less than is normally required? Here's the full question. I recently read a story how the previous rabbi instructed Zalman Meisha HaYitzchaki, Yitzchaki, who's a famous chosher of the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebbe Rashab, to study chassidus at midnight after he was done with his daily affairs. The Rebbe told him that at first it'll be difficult, but after a few weeks it'll get easier. I have a very hard time with this because if I get less sleep, I'm a mess. I cannot function the next day at work. Many days I have to force myself to get in bed at a decent time, 11.15, so I can get up and make it to Minyan and work. So what's your advice? Also, I struggle every year with saying the entire Tehillim, Yom Kippur at night. How important is this? Baruch Hashem, I managed to finish Tehillim, Heshan and Shabbos Mavarchim, but Yom Kippur at night I just haven't mastered yet. Okay, great questions. So first of all, let's make this clear. This is a story with a chassid like Zalman Mesha does not necessarily mean that the Rebbe would tell you the same thing. Yet, there's a story, and we know the story is not the only person. We have other stories as well. It's a famous story that Rabbi Saul Nevler was actually a machutin with uh, Mamesha. Saul Nevler, the Rebbe Rashab once told him, suggested to him, or told him, he should stay up Thursday night, Mishmer, to learn. Okay, the Rebbe says, you do it. <laughs> but what, is that, what did Rabbi Saul do? Uh, time to time, he got a little tired. So Thursday afternoon, he would sometimes take a nap. And that way, Thursday night, he could be up. The Friedrich Rebbe, who took meticulous attendance of the Bochrim in Temchet Mimim, noticed, and together with Rebbe Rashab, they're reviewing that, the Bochr, his Thursdays disappears from time to time, from Seder, Yeshiva. The Rebbe Rashab called him in, summoned him, and said, Rabbi Yisrael, what's it us? My hi, what is this? So he says that Rebbe said I should stay up Thursday night. I'm all Sometimes you need to make preparations 
to stay up. You know, he was hinting why he went to take a nap. The Rebbe Rashab answered him, You think from sleeping you can come to not sleeping? In other words, the whole point of not sleeping means that you're in a state of a higher state. You're going to sleep to prepare yourself not to sleep, to be in that higher state. Now, is this said to everybody? Listen, health comes first always. A bochem, or any person that has, has issues, needs to address those issues. You cannot put your health at risk. And the Rabbi made that also clear. And yet they gave this directive to know that if your health is good, that no, kite means you don't have to indulge. Remember, sleeping, the Rambam Taka says how much a person should sleep. Well, the average is seven hours, or six hours, or eight hours. Different people have different needs, different metabolisms. But sleeping is not an end in itself. Sleeping also has an indulgent side to it. A person schlaft, he likes to schlaft, like, like schlaft. The Rebbe once told a chassid that by my fabreng and there are a few people who sleep with their eyes closed, and many sleep with their eyes open. So schlaft is more than just physical sleep. To be a fashlofen a person, to be a drowsy person, to be low maintenance. Sleep is a necessity God created. It refreshes us. But that doesn't mean you have to be mahadr. You have to do overdo it. Why? Because that's exactly, sleep is not an end in itself. Chassidus talks about sleep as an example for golas, actually. That golas, everything is on low maintenance. The flames are low. It's like a human being, when they're sleeping, they're, full, they're not fully functional. They're breathing, the mind is working, but it's all in low a low, a low burner. Kista de chayus, it's called. Very low. And that's why sleep is considered, when you wake up in the morning, there's tuma on your fingers, you have to wash nagelvas. The soul gets refreshed. Sleep can also bring great revelations. But sleep itself is considered an inferior state than being awake, when you're alert. That's why Golos is called shina, hayinu kechelmin, we were like dreamers in sleep. And Gaula is considered waking up. Think of being alert completely conscious and cognizant. So the concept has to be understood in that, obviously, in a way, in context, some people can not really go without a number of hours of sleep, so they have to realize and focus on the quality of the message. And wherever possible, sometimes you do have to push yourself, whether it's a Shana Rabba or Yom Kippur. But, and there are chassidim, and even today, people who... Uh, who worked on themselves that you need less sleep. I don't need to indulge this much. Just like I don't need to eat so much, I don't need to sleep so much. But it's case by case. Terebbe Rashab once said, when they asked him, how do you sleep so little? He said, They say, I do things swiftly. I have a, I have a head that grabs quickly, so I also sleep quickly. I always thought of it as an aside that you know, today we know that REM, rapid eye movement, is the moment when sleep really regenerates us is sometime early morning, 4 or 5 a.m., when the, the, and they measure it to, and, take, and monitor it, that there's a moment when there's some type of a cell regeneration, like a surge. It's a time when most people dream. But that surge is so intense, you can't just enter it, so that's why you need hours beforehand, like in a sense to take off, and then you need some hours afterwards to land. So you can say that Rebbe Rashab didn't need to take off in the landing, he was able to right away access, and go straight, caught to the chase, straight to that moment of regeneration. Just a thought. The rest of us have to do what we have to do. As I said, it should always never be at the expense of health. And that's something you can review. But it's also a concept. And once heard the Rebbe told us, the Rebbe Rashab told someone who used to say Tikkun Chatzos at midnight, a certain prayer on the Golas and so on. So he once fell asleep. Came to the Rebbe Rashab for a Tikkun. What should I do? I fell asleep. I always say it every night. The Rebbe Rashab said with, with like a surprise, Vikumtis, as I eat the Nishkem Balabos of Zanguf. How is it possible that a Jew is not control over his body? Now you can say, one second, we all get exhausted, we get tired. But the Rebbe was, and this was not a chassid of the highest level necessarily. A chassid. But the Rebbe was saying to him, a Jew has to be control over your body. And he's falling asleep. He wasn't criticizing him, he was just pointing out that there's a higher standard, higher expectation. So I hope I addressed the issue and... Um, and again, case by case, talk to your mashpia. But the theme, the point is very clear about what this is. We say, you know, we are here to work, to work hard, and not just to sleep away our days out of escapism or avoidance or just plain boredom. I also refer you to episode 160, where I talked more about sleep in general. 
And with that, let's move to the next topic, handshakes. Handshakes. So this is a topic I've addressed, but I will address it now again, and here's the question. Are there any situations when we can shake hands with someone from the opposite gender? Yeah. So I'm going to read the questions, and I read it because the new questions came in, even though I did address the topic, I'll soon refer you. Firstly, thank you for all the time and effort you spend and invest in sharing your knowledge and clarity with us all. I greatly appreciate it and look forward to each episode. I especially admire your straightforward, chassidisha, and honest attitude. My question is regarding shlichus as well as a professional work atmosphere, both of which I'm involved in. How should I deal with accepting handshakes from the opposite gender? Are there any leniencies or times when I may shake his or her hand? I'm afraid certain people will be very turned off by my decline to their handshake. And often I find it extremely uncomfortable and hard to get around. I look forward to hearing your response in the near future. Thank you very much. Another person writes, Hi Rabbi, I'm not sure if you have talked about this in the past. I wanted to know what your take is on men shaking hands with women and vice versa. Is there a difference in conduct if the chassid is a shliach or a rabbi of community or doing business? And if I could be so bold to ask you, what do you, what do, you do personally? A person who cares. P.S. Please don't mention this publicly. Okay, I won't. <laughs> but basically, I was in a place where I saw somebody shake a woman's hand. I'm not mentioning any city, so this, I feel it's appropriate to say it. I did not approach her because I felt uncomfortable. I think I did think perhaps there was a good reason. And obviously, if you don't feel comfortable answering what you do personally, what you personally do, no pressure. Okay, so I address this very directly in episodes 89, 139, and 141. And it's based on halacha. It's based on halacha. There are different opinions, but based on halacha that it says about opposite genders, not only that there should be no relations, there should be no kiruv. Shouldn't even get close. So they derive from that, and some say it's midaraisa, that you don't even touch. Question is, touching in the form of affection or not an affectionate touch? And there too, there are opinions. But the consensus is, and definitely the highest standard is, is to avoid it altogether. So I can send you the sources, but um, if you want the sources, just email us, but send us your email address because we don't have it on the form, it's anonymous. But there is a discussion about it. There's the Rambam, there's the Ramban, there's the Shach, Rabbeinu Yena. And overall, the consensus is, even if there are some that are more lenient in the context when it's for business or it's like not affectionate. But even then, how do you determine where do you, cross, where do you draw the line? So generally speaking, the consensus is to avoid it altogether. Now, what do you do? The question is asked in the halachic they write as well. They say, um, that what about embarrassment? Embarrassing another person is also halach. So how do you, which one trumps which? Embarrassing somebody or not shaking hands. So there, there are different opinions. If there is outside of a, it's not affectionate, it's not personal. However, there are those that say even for that reason, there's no that's not acceptable. And one of them is Allah uh, Mishnah Allah from Anasha Klein. He writes three reasons. Three reasons. Many decisors disagree with the Shach, even though the Shach Alatera does give some leniency and write that even touch that is not affectionate is forbidden. Number two. The Shach's lenient ruling is in regard to a doctor involved in his work. It is possible that even he would forbid handshaking in other circumstances. And number three, even if a handshake begins non-affectionately, it can easily lead to something more affectionate, which all would forbid. So that's the consensus. What people do actually, I'm not going to speak for others. You asked about me, I'll tell you what I do. What I've done, because I'm in very public scenarios, very often I'm in bookstores, signing books, and people don't even have a clue. And they're not even people there who know so generally, I avoid it. Can I say every time? No, there are people who put their hand inside. And I did shake. I didn't pull away. Whether I did the right thing or not, I can't tell you. But that's what I did at the moment. But not initiated it. And then I, what I did is something even better. I came up with a greater idea. I don't shake anybody's hands. Not men and not women. I'm an author. I'm eccentric. Maybe, I, maybe they think I'm obsessed with germs, whatever it is. So I become, that's the, that's the easiest approach. For me, at least. I don't shake anyone's hand. I don't shake men. I don't shake women. Because it's very awkward. You shake the man's hand, the woman's not. So I decided I'm not shaking anyone's hand. It's much easier. 
Other people have different ways and methods. And um, I'm not here to preach to anyone what to do. You talk about halacha, halacha is halacha. And again, I'm not defending what I've done because I know quite a well the halachas. So there were times that someone did that. I will tell you an interesting story. I was once at an event and there was a playwright, a known playwright, a woman. And she was being honored. Everybody was shaking her hand. I was there and now I'm there and everybody's watching. I did not shake her hand. And everybody was so shocked because it was like, she's the star, she's being honored, she's a celebrity. And the woman says to me quietly, you know, that's very refreshing. It's very refreshing. Later she told me privately that there was someone else, a rabbi, who not just touched her, not just shook her hand, but it was more than that. It was very affectionate. And she said it was very refreshing. So interesting. I think it has to be done always sensitively. And if need explaining, explain. It is awkward. It's one of the challenges. I'm not suggesting it's not. But we know what the Tater says. And definitely me the Chassidus. So I gave you the picture as best as I can in short. But I refer you to those other episodes where I discussed it much more at length. And in general, knowing information is always best. Because when you know, you know the, the Mercators, the sources, the reasons for it. And even if there is a leniency, you know that too. And then you have to make a decision based with a rov and mashpia, not just based on your own, um, your own, um, your own sensibilities, but based on a teira and aloch and and the given situation. Okay. We'll do a follow up. Then we'll do the chassidus question. What is a follow up? Two follow ups. One is about mustache. So last week I spoke about the mustache. They asked about trimming or cutting the mustache. And I said I had not seen something, but I mentioned that there's two opinions. So actually, a few people wrote to me that it's, the Rebbe does have a letter about it, which is printed. In the Gigris Kedish, volume 19, page 422. So the Rebbe says, regarding your question about shaving or trimming um, and, and cutting your mustache, Rebbe says, since I did not hear about it, I did not hear a direct directive about this, an open, a, a overt directive, and there's yes, dodim lakana lakan, there are opinions this way and that way. That's why you should look at, you should check out and try to clarify the mining anash, the custom among anash, meaning the community. And Rabboni anash, the Rabbonim of anash, who know, who may know the actual behavior of older chsidim. An action is always most powerful, how people actually behaved. That's addition to what we discussed. I believe it's also printed in volume 32 in Likute Sikhas, this letter. Okay. One more follow-up. This was not a follow-up to Torah, to me, to, I'm sorry, to um, My Life Chassidus Applied. It's a follow-up to... something I spoke about in one of my other programs. As you may know, I have other programs. Every Wednesday night I do a class, and there's other short videos and texts and, and articles that I write. You can always go to Meaningful Life, and you can check out and subscribe to any of them. So one of them is called Soul Workout. So this person writes, in regards to the soul workout that you talked about, learning from your body's sensations, okay? Because they talked about learning and listening to your body as it speaks to you. Someone asked the following. I understand your general meaning, meaning, while I'm sure it is not your intention, you're not mentioning that some people experience chronic pain from debilitating disease can make your message appear to me to be insensitive and hurtful. There's nothing, there's nothing people who are in constant pain would like more than to feel the no feeling of being. Okay, so my comment on that is what I said there was that there's a certain element when you say to somebody that's healthy, what does it feel like being healthy? If they t- have an answer, it's not a good sign. Healthy should not feel like anything. You shouldn't feel anything when you're breathing. Your heart is beating. If you feel a sensation, that means something is either racing too quickly or something is blocking, God forbid, and so on. And yet there are sometimes sensations that tell us that there's a problem. So this person is saying it seems insensitive. Some people don't want pain. It's not coming because they have a problem. They have chronic pain. So yes, I should have qualified it. You know, the fact is we can't always qualify everything, and I qualify it now. People who have chronic pain need to look at a different thing, why God would send it to them. But to suggest that they're trying to be conscious of themselves, obviously not. And there's nothing to suggest that they're unhealthy in their attitude. They didn't ask for the pain. 
So I acknowledge that and thank you for pointing that out to me. Let's do now the Chassidus question. Please explain the statement that for certain souls, the Rajbi, like the Rajbi, there was no Khurban, no destruction of the Beis Amigdash. This is a statement written in Pelech Hariman from Rabbi Hillel Paracher in the name of Amanuch, in the name of Rabbi Isaac Homler, even though there's a question whether that's whom he means, but it seems so. And the Rebbe wonders because he writes Amanuah means something that he passed away and he hadn't passed away when that Maimon was said. But the Rebbe says perhaps the Maimon was said or written later. That he heard from him, which means it came from the name of the Alter Rebbe. Oh, I think he says it comes from the Alter Rebbe. For high Neshamas, great Neshamas, like Rajbi, the Besamidish was never destroyed. So I'm asked to explain what this means. <clears throat> Let me begin with, since we're talking Chassidus question, we know in Seder Ishtashlus there's many levels. And one of them is called the world of Tayu. And there's the world of Tikkun. Tayu, like we say in Chumash, the second part of Tayu, Tayu is a spiritual world, the Kabbalah explains, where the tension of, of incompatible energies and containers was too much and it caused the containers to shatter, not physically, conceptually, and not at one moment, it's a perpetual tension. Tikkun repairs it. In a sense, Tikkun HaOilam, Avedis Habirurim, is separating and clarifying from the debris and putting it back in order and repairing the world and preparing it for the Gula and Mashiach. When the Birurim will be finished, we have the Gula. So there's a Shvira. This Shvira Sakelim, Chassidus explains, is rooted in the Tzimtzum Arishin, God concealing himself. In turn, the Shvira Sakelim impacted a bunch of series of events. This imbalance caused the Mio Talavona, the diminishing of the moon, which in turn leads to Chetet Sadas, Adam and Eve eating from the tree of knowledge. Every inconsistency, every rift in history, in time, originates from these so-called breaks, these shatterings, including, of course, the destruction of the temple, Churban Beis Amigdash, by Yishin and by Yishini. Every Khurban is not a positive thing. The house could not stand any longer, either due to certain sins or due to sinas chinam, divisiveness. How could I rest among you when you're at war with each other? So the Shechina is nostalgic, and the place remains holy, the Harabais, but the building is no longer there. Binyan, Beis Ashlishi, says, well, Binyan Nitzchi, it will be an eternal edifice, never be destroyed again. So where does destruction come from? It comes from an inconsistent Ishtalshus. There are Nishamas that are not affected by that. That doesn't mean that Rajbi did not fast on Tishabov. This does not mean that they don't understand that something was destroyed. First of all, the destruction happened for all Kalisol, and Kabonis were not brought anymore, including them. But the concept of that destruction, they were not affected directly because their Nishama comes from a place that's higher than destruction, that cannot be destroyed. And we discussed earlier, Rajbi bridged Primis and, 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 primis and Nigla Deter, the inner and the outer. He was a Neshama that transcended destruction. That's why he was able to reveal the innermost secrets of Teda to give us the power to correct and repair the destruction. It's like you need something from beyond, above the system to help repair the system. It's interesting who else would go into this category like Rajbi. But he stated clearly about him. And that's why... Rajbi was able to I'm able to, to um, atone, to be able to absolve Din. Din is Tzimtzum, Din is Khurban, and so on from all people. Like Behemah has the power of Geula, Geula Dika power. Like Mashiach has that power, a power that brings energy from a place that's beyond destruction to help us repair when things are broken. They ask the question that Rizal, why did that Rizal say Al-Chet? These sins are not shayach to So students explained. Number one, he said it for the generation. Number two, he's part of the generation. Everything the generation has, some subtle weights in him, like the story with the Mitla Rebbe, who had to find within himself, subtle, subtle, some issue that someone mentioned to the Mitla Rebbe. He couldn't give him a tikkun until he repaired it within himself. So you have to say that Rajbi, who was part of the Jewish people, felt their pain. He himself was a neshama from a greater place. But he had to come in to make a stick. Like we know that after 12 years in the Maida, in the, in, the, in the cave, he came out and everything burned. 
Abishta said you have to go back a 13th bar mitzvah year and come out and repair everything. So to not tolerate the breaks and the pettiness of this world was not the kavana. Rashbi initially was on that level. Then he got to a higher level, everything you have to repair. So obviously he identified with it. But he himself was from the world beyond break and therefore has the power to repair. And that's why we invoke his name. Because we want him to help us achieve that Geula Dika power to bring the Geula to repair all breaks. Shaman like Rajbi, for which who there was no Khurban at all. Now let's do the next three essays. This is going in order from the top essays, which we announced right before Pesach. So now we're going to the next three essays. The first one is this is essay contest year 2019. And these are all still in the top 10, so they're all excellent essays. This is Hasidic Lessons on Growing Through Trauma by Aaron Zev Moshel, age 18, Melbourne, Australia, student in Melbourne, Zal. There are very few, he writes, if any, people who will not or will not face some measure, who have not or will not face some measure of trauma in their lives. Obstacles are an inseparable feature of any journey. The obvious question is, Chassidus teaches that it's within the soul's power. It's interesting, it's connected to Churban that I just spoke of. Chassidus teaches that it's within the soul's power to experience each event and up for growth. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, as well as death and disaster. It's a book in Chumash. The obvious question becomes how. How does an individual, an individual community, people, society rise, rise above trauma and grow? Using the five-factor post-traumatic growth inventory for measuring growth after trauma, this essay will discuss a Hasidic methodology supported by teachings and tales of the Chabad Rabbeim for facilitating PTG, that's post-traumatic growth. And goes on to the inventory, the five steps, five factors, personal strength, new possibilities, appreciation of life, relating to others, spiritual change, and goes to each one of them and shows Hasidus teaches us how to do so. An excellent essay. Could have easily been a winner. As I said, these are small little points, fraction of points that determine one from the next. I definitely highly recommend reading this essay, which is posted now at chassidusapply.com. Just go to essays and you'll see the new essays that are posted. Very well done. Well annotated. Excellent, excellent essay. Good. Next essay is in Hebrew. As I said, many, many essays came from Hebrew. It is called the Hasidic response or Hasidic approach to the to the what shall I say to the fear and to the that exists in our modern world. It calls a model A Aleph Beis Aleph Menachem Mendel Dekel, age twenty two. Yokna Am in Israel is a student at Temchit Mimim in Tveria. And he writes, it's a Hebrew essay, as I said, it's posted. He talks exactly about that fear. And again, excellent essay. He talks about how cognitive psychology addresses it and its limitations, how Shittus HaMusr, Musr, not Chassidus addresses it, how behavioral psychology addresses it, Actually, I should have gone the other way. How uh, did I start with cognitive psychology? Behavioral psychology, the shit and teda and musr. And then the model that comes from chassidus that revolutionizes a new approach in dealing with fear. In transforming it, not just avoiding it, not just countering it. To understand its roots beyond its symptoms. And he calls it Aleph Beis Aleph, an excellent, excellent imun. I'm looking at the three things are imun. Okay, I don't see it offhand, so sorry about that. Yeah, imun betochen. Okay, you look it up yourself. I'm sorry. Amuna, imun, and betochen. Okay, imuna, betochen, and imun. Amun is faith, betochen is trust, and imun is is another form of, of um, commitment. And that is that essay. Good. So that's essay number two. And now the third essay, and again in Hebrew, Egoism, Mebaya El Pitrana. 
Egoism, From Problem to Solution, Levi Wilhelm, age, tw- age 17, Sfas, Israel, student, Yeshivat Chabad in Sfas. And he writes exactly about that, egoism. Again, another excellent essay, and talks about ego. How do we look at ego? I discussed it a bit earlier in this program, but he, this is much more comprehensive, and analyzes what exactly is the ego, its symptoms, what, what are positive elements of it, what are the root of it, how do you channel and harness ego, and ultimately the bitl to the creator, our bitl, the chassidus teaches us how to take our lives and align it to a higher purpose. Tremendously good essay, again, and it could have easily been another winner. It is a winner, but I'm talking about the top winners that won the prizes. Very good outline. I'm just going through it all. Yeah, so that there you go, the third essay of this week's three essays. Every week, what I do is I review in the order of the marks, the essays. So your essays will come up and uh, look forward. We try to let you know beforehand so you can share it and listen to it as we speak about them. So with this, we conclude this week's episode 261 of My Life Chassidus Applied. Everyone should have a Nishfar Falandike week, taking Pesach Sheni lesson. No, you can always do better. You can always grow. You can always repair even something that may have been overlooked or lost, opportunities. Like Ba'ema, that opens up all the channels. Bahar, to stand proud. And may Hashem bless us all that this week of Like Ba'ema, we chenli lifted kol helem kulim adin. So as the Rabbeim explained that Rashbi can take din, take, the Munkachah says din means also the din of Golas, that Rashbi can take us out of Golas, and ultimately like Behemoth, and even before like Behemoth, we should be redeemed in the Gula Amitiz Vashlema. We're here every Sunday, My Life Chassidus Applied, Sunday 8 to 9 p.m. All these programs are archived, can be listened to anytime, you can download it, podcast, and, I, and all other forms and platforms. Everyone have a very blessed week.